0: It's philosophy talk. If you only knew the power of the
1: dark side.
0: Matter and energy, the dark side.
1: Why does dark matter matter?
0: Did you know that all the matter we've observed accounts for only 5% of the total universe?
1: Where's the rest of it? Anger, fear, aggression.
2: The dark side of the force are they. Easily they flow, but to join when
3: they fight.
1: Is dark matter just a theory or a fact? By definition, you can't see dark matter or dark energy, so how do we know it's really there? You don't know the power of the dark side.
0: Is dark matter God's way of marking things confidential?
1: I'll never turn to the dark side. Our guest is Priya Natarajan from Yale University. Matter
0: and energy, the dark side.
1: Give yourself to the dark side.
0: Coming up. On Philosophy Talk.
3: Hi, I'm Josh Lambie.
4: And I'm Ray Briggs. Thanks for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk.
3: Did you know we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website?
4: Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything
3: except your intelligence from Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show.
1: Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW in San Francisco.
0: We're continuing conversations that begin at Stanford University at Philosopher's Corner.
1: That's where Ken teaches philosophy, and I did for 40 years. Today, we're thinking about matter and energy. We're calling it the dark side. It's part of our series, A Philosophical Guide to the Cosmos.
0: A weird and wonderful cosmos, Ken. Take all the ordinary objects you can see, from tables and chairs to the stars and planets. All that is less than 5%
1: of the total mass energy of the cosmos. And the other 95% is invisible stuff, like dark matter and dark energy. Those are our topics today.
0: So-called because they don't absorb or reflect light.
1: Which is why we can't see them.
0: And why scientists know very little, assuming they know anything, about this invisible 95%. Well,
1: they do know something, John. They they confidently estimate that dark matter... Makes up more than 25% of the universe, and dark energy, about 70% of the universe, and they're confident of that.
0: Well, whoop de doo So science tells us that mysterious entity number one makes up a certain fraction of the cosmos, and mysterious entity number two makes up the rest. Basically, they tell us nothing.
1: Thanks, science. Well, don't be so impatient. Uh, the, the, the science of dark matter and dark energy, they're just getting started. They're in their infancy. So what if they don't have all the answers right now? Don't be so impatient. Well, I don't want all the answers,
0: but given how little scientists know, why are they so confident this dark stuff
1: exists in the first place? Well, it's kind of like a cosmic detective story, John. Given all the matter that we can observe, the stuff that we know is there, we also know there has to be more. Because matter means gravity. Gravity holds uh, galaxies together. And without dark matter, There's just not enough matter around to do the job. With dark matter, and only with dark matter, I gather there is enough uh, gravity to do the job. Sounds more like a ghost story than a detective story.
0: At least ghosts say boo so you know they're there. We can't explain galaxies by what we directly observe, so we posit some mysterious, unobservable things and give them names, and that does the explaining for us.
1: Well, wait a minute, that's just how science works. You observe a phenomenon, you measure some effects, then you posit some, yeah, hidden, unobservable causes of the observed effects, but you do more, you experiment. You do some experiments designed to confirm or disconfirm sometimes your hypothesis. That's what science does. Yeah,
0: that's how we ended up with bogus scientific ideas like phlogiston.
1: Phlogiston? Really? Come on. You can't be serious. You're not comparing dark matter with phlogiston.
0: Well, yes, I am. The theory of phlogiston was popular among scientists in the 18th century. They thought it explained why things burned, something they didn't understand. So they burned because they released this fire-like element,
1: phlogiston. Well, yeah, but, you know, that was a popular theory for a while, but thanks to the study. of progress of science. By the end of the 18th century, that theory was completely discredited and replaced with our current theory that uh, of, of oxygen as the source of combustion. So I don't quite see what your point is, John.
0: Well, how do we know that dark matter is not just a, another phlogiston-like fantasy of scientists that want to have something to say? Once oxygen was discovered, scientists realized that phlogiston was just something they made up to explain a phenomenon they didn't yet understand.
1: Well, I'm, I'm not a physicist. I, I can't marshal all the evidence that they've gathered for dark matter or dark energy. And sure, you're right. Maybe there's still some controversy about the exact nature of those things. We haven't, we haven't known about this stuff for very long, but here's my guess. My guess is that dark matter and dark energy are not like we just done. They're like black holes. They're here to stay. We're going to progressively gather more knowledge about these things. Dark matter, or black holes, well, their names certainly sound similar. I think that's on purpose, John, because like dark matter, black holes were first posited because of their odd gravitational effects. They didn't directly observe them. People wondered if there really were black holes or if it was just some crazy idea that some scientists came up with uh, to make certain equations work out. Well, now, everybody, everybody accepts the existence of black holes as uncontroversial.
0: So you're trying to tell me I need to get on the right side of history to get on board with mysterious dark matter
1: and energy yeah i'm not trying to dismiss your skepticism altogether it's sometimes good to be skeptical but sometimes you gotta you know you have to give in to the wonder of it all give yourself
0: to the dark side john give myself into the dark side okay i will darth vader here i come we sent our roving philosophical reporter shuka kalantari to explore dark matter and dark energy in films like Star Wars and TV and books, she'll talk to a sci-fi author about how we might harvest these dark materials. She files this report.
2: Dark matter and dark energy are everywhere. And even though we don't know much about either, we love to talk about them on TV.
0: Guidance system? Online. Autopilot? Present. Dark matter indicator? Making a noise. All systems operational. Let's rock.
2: That's the cartoon Futurama, And here's the popular TV show, The Big Bang Theory.
5: We're going to be designing an experiment to look for the annihilation spectrum resulting from dark
3: matter collisions in space. Ooh, dark matter. We better bring a flashlight.
2: (laughs) Not to mention the Meryl Streep movie called Dark Matter. Looking at the stars? I'm looking at the dark matter. 99% of the universe, dark matter. Actually, it's 95%. And it's a blend of dark matter and dark energy. The other 5% is us. Stars, planets, galaxies. But even with those percentages, scientists don't really know what dark matter or dark energy is.
5: Dark matter is kind of the the missing piece in an equation that just doesn't work out.
2: David Walton is a science fiction novelist and the author of Superposition, a sci-fi book about a man caught between parallel universes. Walton says the standing mystery of physics is, what is the universe actually made of?
5: And since we don't know, we just call that dark matter. For a science fiction author, uh, this is a wide open door, right? Because it can be anything.
2: And in science fiction, you can do most anything with dark matter. Like harvest it. In the book and movie The Golden Compass, dark matter is called dust. And it's harvested by torturing little children. So many worlds. But connecting them all is dust. Dust was here before the witches of the air,
0: the Egyptians of the water, and the bears of the ice.
5: The prevailing idea at this point is that um, dark matter is um, some kind of exotic particle, particle in the standard model of quantum physics, that um, we just have not uh, detected yet.
2: Once detected, Walton says scientists can replicate dark matter to make huge quantities of usable energy.
5: So that's one possibility, we could make it ourselves. The other possibility is that we could, of course, go out to wherever it is and, and get it. And that, of course, um, depends a lot on, on what it is.
2: Another possibility is that dark matter is not really matter at all. We assume dark matter has mass because that's the foundation of our whole understanding of gravity in the universe.
5: It's almost more exciting if it's not mass. If it's not mass, that means that there is something else that can deform space time. Um, you can imagine a spaceship that uh, flies by. Having a uh, continuously moving gravity well in front of it, um, that it just, uh, you know, is essentially continuously falling into the divot of space time that it's moving in front of it and um, stealing all of the energy required for travel from the fabric of space time itself. Um, (laughs) That would be something, uh, you know, really extraordinary.
2: And extraordinarily hard to wrap your head around. Science fiction author David Walton says yet another idea is that dark matter could never be harvested because it's actually the pull of a much larger parallel universe. And maybe humans can leave this crowded little planet one day and resettle in this other universe. Until then, for Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari.
0: Thanks, Shuka, for focusing the intense beam of fantasy and fiction on dark matter. I'm John Perry. With me is my fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor.
1: And today, we're thinking about dark matter and dark energy. We're calling it the dark side. We're joined now by Priya Natarajan. She's a professor of astronomy from Yale University. She's author of the very fine book, Mapping the Heavens, the Radical Scientific Ideas that Reveal the Cosmos. Priya, welcome to Philosophy Talk.
4: Thanks for having me on.
1: Priya, you work on one of the biggest and most challenging problems in science right
0: now the mysterious and invisible other 95% of the universe. So, I mean, why not something you could see? What was it that first sparked your (laughs) interest in discovering the dark secrets of the universe?
4: Well, I mean, the mysterious and the unseen and the invisible, right, has a very, very special draw. Um, You have to agree, right? The fact that so little uh, is known about what it is made of, although we know quite a lot about how it's distributed and so on in the cosmos. I think for me personally, the pull was that the mystery of it was the pull.
0: Well, well that's, that's great. That's what led me into philosophy was the mystery of things, plus my inability to do math. Otherwise, maybe I would have been an astronomer. Uh, dark matter and dark energy. Let's, let's take them one at a time. Let's start with dark matter. Help us understand the role that dark matter plays in the cosmos.
4: Right, so dark matter, we believe, is actually kind of the glue that holds galaxies and all the sort of structured part of the universe together. And, in fact, we infer that it exists, right? It's there, although it's unseen, because of the mismatch between the gravitational mass of an object that is determined. So the gravitational mass of an object is determined by measuring the motions it it generates, the velocities, the speeds with which, for example, stars move around in a galaxy or galaxies move around in a cluster, So there's a mismatch between that and the luminous matter. So if you add up all the stars that you see in a galaxy or all the stars in all the galaxies in a cluster, um, then you'll find that, and we know a lot about stellar evolution, we find that there's a factor of 10 or so mismatch between these two masses. So, for example, stars are whizzing around much faster uh, around galaxies than, than we expect. And so this mismatch, uh, we say, is accounted for by the sort of invisible dark matter. Let me
1: ask you a question uh, about that. Yeah. So that's about galaxies. They're large things. And you work on clusters, right? You, Which are even, even larger, larger. Which are even <laughs> larger. But yeah. I understand that dark matter, tell me if this is right, it pervades the universe. It's like... It's all throughout the universe. So do we see these effects like close up in our solar system too? Or is it the mismatch? Or is it only when you look at the universe at the largest scales?
4: Right, so we happen to be in our solar system within our galaxy. So our galaxy does have a lot of dark matter. So dark matter is smeared basically everywhere <laughs> in the universe, but it it's lumped in some places preferentially, so locations of galaxies, for example, and the outskirts of galaxies. So we're pretty close to the center of our um, galaxy, and the dark matter around the solar system. There's the, we we are bathed in dark matter, but there's just not a whole lot of it.
0: So so. As I read uh, about dark matter, the popular stuff, I, I've mm-hmm. come to think of it as kind of like a black styrofoam uh, that doesn't really do much of anything except hold stuff in place. Like even inside my head, there's all this dark matter holding the really important neurons and stuff in place. Is that <laughs> is that a good analogy?
4: Well, 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 well. So actually, dark matter, right, it, I mean, I like to think of it as like a super lazy particle. And right. it sort of just goes through. So it actually flows through us and, mm. uh, and does nothing to, it does not rearrange the atoms in our body or whatever. So we're sitting around, right? All three of us are probably having some dark matter particles go through us, but they do nothing. So I think <laughs> the, the sort of styrofoam idea is nice. I mean, I like to think of it more like the scaffolding for a building, Mm. So basically it sort of holds everything together and sort of structures it and actually gives the structure.
1: So this, there's, a lot, there's a lot to think about here. I, I really want to understand more how they are these particles that do nothing but exert gravity. All other particles do a lot of stuff other than exert gravity. They interact with one another in all kinds of ways, but apparently not dark matter. Well, Brit. we
4: think that they may interact with each other, but very weakly, if at all.
1: Yeah. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about matter and energy, the dark side. Do dark matter
0: and dark energy really exist? Or are they just crazy ideas that scientists came up with to make their equations work? We'll discuss this in the next segment.
1: Dark matter, dark energy, and the invisible universe, when Philosophy Talk continues. Philosophy Talk needs you. Show your support for Philosophy Talk by becoming a partner in our online community of thinkers. Your tax-deductible
0: donations help us stay on the air.
1: And the community needs more thinkers like you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking, and thank you for donating. Darkness, darkness,
3: hide for the things that cannot be, keep my mind from constant. Talk the things that cannot see.
0: Darkness, darkness, dark matter. The Milky Way's pillow, keeping it from bouncing into other galaxies. Scientists say that 95% of the universe is made up of things we can't see. Dark matter, dark energy, the logic of other people's positions. I'm John Perry. This is
1: Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except, except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and we're thinking about dark matter and dark energy. Our guest is Priya
0: Natarajan from Yale University, and she's the author of Mapping the Cosmos, a great book.
1: So, uh, Priya, uh, John uh, wondered earlier whether this was a ghost story or, as I say, a detective story. Now, there are lots of things that turn out to be ghost stories in science. This hunt for the ether was a ghost story. The phlogiston was a ghost story. So uh, you guys can't directly observe this stuff. Why are you confident that it's a a well-solved mystery rather than a ghost story?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very healthy questioning attitude to have. But this is fundamentally different from miasma, phlogiston, all of that, because we have many different independent Mm -hmm. lines of evidence that suggest that allow us to infer the existence of dark matter. So we indirectly measure how much there is, and we can map it exquisitely, right? So I think the independent, for me, that's the reason why I really like clusters of galaxies. They are about a 1,000 galaxies that are held together by the largest kind of lumps of dark matter in the universe. And if you think of uh, them in terms of a la Newton, just as exerting gravity, the dark matter exerting gravity around and speeding up the motions, then as I mentioned earlier, the the galaxies, the thousand or so galaxies that are held by the dark matter of a cluster are whizzing around at speeds that are much, much larger than if the only mass was the luminous matter that you see. So that's one line of evidence. So if you want to think like Newton, there's evidence there already for a huge amount of unseen matter. And now if you want to get more sophisticated and say, you know what? Actually, I want to think about gravity, not a la Newton, but like Einstein. Think of it as what shapes the, uh, shape space. So mass basically causes huge divots in this four-dimensional sheet that we call space-time. Then a cluster of galaxies actually causes one of the deepest divots in space-time yeah. because it has a huge amount of but dark let, matter, Let me right? stop
1: you. I'm going to ask you a naive philosophical hmm. question, sort of. Uh, yeah. Uh, because you say dark matter, and I wonder uh-huh. what makes it matter. In some ways, it's l- very like unlike other matter. In one way, it's like uh, other matter. It's like matter in that it exerts gravi- gravitational force, yeah. but it doesn't re- interact with the rest of matter in the way that the matter that the, the you know the non dark matter does. So. I wonder, I'm wondering if the talk of dark and non-dark luminous matter is equivocal on matter. I mean, does it mean the same thing? I mean, did you just, you, should we call it dark X, which exerts gravity? Or are you confident that it's no, a form we of matter?
4: Know. No, very, very confident because gravity is the force, the way in which we think about, you know, the attribute of matter. Anything that has mass exerts gravity, And that's the reason for that nomenclature. The dark part of it actually comes from the fact it doesn't interact with light, with any Mm -hmm. kind of photons or light, right? So so coming back to what I was saying, one of the reasons we have many independent lines of compelling evidence, and as I said, even if you want to see gravity a la Newton or Einstein, so Einstein then, if you have a huge divot, that would bend the paths of light rays from distant objects. So for example, a cluster of galaxies, the divot in space-time that it causes, kind of refocuses light from really distant galaxies that lie beyond the cluster. So remember, everything has to pass through the divot, right? And so the light bending that Einstein predicted, so if you take a cluster of galaxies... And you look at the light bending, which we can now see and measure because of the exquisite optics of the Hubble Space Telescope. You see these bent out of shape galaxies that lie beyond the lens, the cluster which acts as a lens. And we infer, therefore, how much matter you need to cause that kind of divot, how deep that we can back this out. By looking at the distortions, we can figure out how deep the divot has to be. And those numbers tally, right? So whether you want to look at it via Newton's point of view or Einstein's point of view, you get the same amount of missing matter, which is spectacular.
0: So, so, you know, it fits into Newton's view, that's great. Fits into Einstein's view, that's great. How about, how about the quantum physical view? My understanding is sometimes quantum physics looks at things a little bit different than the space-time physics. Is, does dark matter work with both of these theories?
4: Well, the, the that's the big open question. We don't actually have an integrated theory of gravity that, uh, for which we have a microscopic understanding at the quantum level. So, right, this theory of quantum gravity is what is eluding us at the moment. And string theorists and mathematicians have been busy. They've had some interesting um, leads there, but we don't yet have a theory that integrates those two realms. So, so that's not done yet.
1: So let me ask you a question. We've been talking about dark matter. I want to get dark energy on the board here mm-hmm. too. Uh, and yeah. I understand that dark energy is what exp- the, the universe is expanding and the rate of its expansion is accelerating. And somehow dark energy is supposed to explain that. Is that right? And Take me deeper. Yeah,
4: absolutely. So I think, look, when you accelerate your car, right, basically you're burning gas. So you have a gas pedal that is needed to power the acceleration. So the way to think about dark energy is to think of it as the gas pedal for the universe. So (laughs) it's actually causing space itself to not just expand, but accelerate.
1: So why is the energy of expansion, the accelerating, why is that dark? What where's the dark? Does it mean the same thing as applied to dark energy as to dark matter?
4: Well it's it, it's so there I think it's because we don't have enough illumination to understand its nature.
1: You mean oh, it's dark because it's like a, I don't know, Mr. Natural. Let me ask you a question about dark matter. It's dark. dark to us yeah, <laughs> at I, the moment. I, let me understand. Let me understand. Okay, so I learned this. I, you know, my physics was a while ago. But E equals M C squared shows us that energy and matter are related. You can transform the one to the other. Can you transform dark energy into energy? I mean, dark matter into energy? Can you transform dark matter into dark energy? I mean, once how how do they relate in terms? That's of... That's a
4: great question. I mean, but the only the, okay the problem here is uh, people have tried to connect the two phenomena, no success yet uh, with those kinds of models. But I think it's it's kind of useful to understand that, you know, it's not quite a tussle between dark matter so because dark matter has gravity, it tends to pull things in and dark energy tends to pull things apart. So we might mm-hmm. think, hey, so there's this kind of tussle, right? Which is why we are trying to convert one to the other. But it turns out that they operate on very, very different scales. So dark matter operates on much smaller scales and dark energy operates on much larger scales. And the so sort of way to think about it is like, if you know, if you you look at uh, if you look at our bodies, right, we're composed ultimately of molecules and atoms, right? And we have this, like, classical picture of an atom where the nucleus and electron whizzing around. But when you actually shake my arm, you know, you don't actually experience the atomic-level phenomenon, right? So so I think it works on a different scale. So the atomic physics, that view is yeah. valid for very small scale. So you'd have to really focus an electron microscope down to huge factors before you can actually resolve the molecules, say, on my skin or whatever. You're, but, you know, when you shake my hand, that level is actually irrelevant, right? right. You're looking at, the, at it at, from a different level. Right. So that's sort of how dark matter and dark energy operate. They operate on very different scales. Dark matter on the smallest scales and dark energy on sort of cosmic scales.
1: You're listening to a philosophy talk. We're talking about energy, matter and energy, the dark side. We've got a color Keith from San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk. Keith, what's your Thank comment you. or question?
5: My question is, uh, is it believed about a dark matter and dark energy? And I understand that they are very different than from what you said, operating completely different scales. They simply have a similar name. But um, do physicists at this point believe that it's simply a matter of better theory, you know, coming up over the theory of quantum gravity, as you gave an example, uh, or better technology, and we will have you know, a solution to this in X number of decades or something like that? Or is it the sort of thing that's like, no,
1: we just aren't going to be able to figure this out? Good question. And we've got Thank the woman you. to answer that. Thanks for the call, Keith. What do you think, Priya?
4: Well, you know, scientists are never going to give up, right? Science is pretty unrelenting. And so we're going to be searching. So at the moment, right, we're a sort of a bit of an impasse with dark matter because we're sort of fixated on a particular class of candidates. So we're fixated on this kind of particle that's called a neutralino that was produced very early in the universe. It kind of has the mass, we think, of that of the neutron. And all the experiments, the direct detection experiments to find this, have been been giving us zero result at the moment, right? So, and there are other possible candidates. So now we're opening up, you know, and being much more open to looking at this other class of candidates uh, called axions. So... I think that the fact that we haven't found the dark matter particle doesn't mean that we are at a, we are in a position to actually discard the theory, because, as I mentioned, there are many, many independent lines of evidence, right? So I think that uh, I'm optimistic that we might find the dark matter particle in the next, I don't know, decade or so. On the other hand, being a scientist, we always have to remain open, right? So, in the um, earlier on, when the French mathematician Urbain Le Verrier, right, there was a sort of an anomaly in the orbit of Uranus and Newton's laws looked like they could be violated, he figured out that, oh, no, 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 there's Neptune beyond Uranus that's perturbing the orbit, and that fixed it, right? So Newton's laws remained intact. And once again, when the orbit of Mercury was processing, and it was sort of wobbling a little bit, not in consonance with Newton's predictions, he came up with the same idea. He said, hey, there's another planet between the Sun and Mercury, and that's a Vulcan. But you know, Vulcan wasn't there. There's no Vulcan, right? What was needed was a complete reformulation of Newton's view of gravity, right? So you never know that at any given moment whether what you have is reached the limit of a theory that needs right. to be so, completely upended.
1: So Priya, so you're telling us that – so you refer to a negative result in the uh, – what did you call those particles? The, neuro, the neutrino-like particles?
4: Neutralinos. Neutralino. Neutralinos. You
1: refer to a negative result. In science, negative results may be disappointing, but they're actually – essential to the progress of science, right? Isn't that right?
4: Absolutely. I think they, they point the way forward, right, of whether you just need to tweak your current understanding slightly or they may actually suggest a brand new path to a brand new theory, right? One never knows.
0: Priya, I, I want to ask you a slightly personal question as we approach the end of the second segment. So, uh, you know, when when it was shown that the Earth wasn't the center of the universe but the sun was... People Mm -hmm. felt a little depressed, we weren't as important as we thought we were. Then they showed that the Milky Way wasn't just a bunch of sparkles in the sky, but it was a, a galaxy and our solar system was just a small part of that, we felt more meaningless. And then you guys discovered that there's a thousand or a billion or a million or galaxies out there, and we felt really, really tiny and insignificant. And now you've discovered that we're actually 20 times more insignificant than that. And
1: add to that, <laughs> I know from reading something that Priya wrote that you believe in the multiverse uh, hypothesis, Wars. right? Does <laughs> right? This, yeah. this ever depress you?
4: No, actually. In (laughs) fact, it makes me, it just makes me um, exhilarated as, you know, us as humans, right? We have our cognitive capacity. Look how tiny we are, right? And we figured all of this about the universe and we could do even more. So in 1543, like Copernicus kind of moved the pivot from the Earth to the sun. Do you think he could have imagined that we would fly a spacecraft, the Voyager, that would actually leave the sacred confines of the solar system? No, but we've done it. Right. So I think human cognitive capacity is just so amazing that I'm already I mean, I'm always in awe of our own capabilities. Right. Uh, I, I, so I, I, I'm not depressed. OK, at good. All.
1: that's great. That's great. I want to ask you, though, about something. Hmm? You said dark matter. We have multiple yeah. uh, sort of evidentiary avenues for multiple yeah. independent evidentiary sources. Is the same true of dark energy?
4: Absolutely. The same is true for. Dark so tell energy me too. about
1: the multiplicity of. Uh,
4: Right. So the discovery itself was by was made by looking at these sort of standard light bulbs in our universe, which are supernovae. And because we know their brightnesses, and so when we measure it's an explosion, or the end state of a star, and during that explosion, looking at how bright it is, because if we know the distance, we know how... Um, the brightness falls off with distance is one over R-square. So the farther away you are, the fainter you are. So it turns out that we found these standard light bulbs, and they were a lot fainter even accounting for this one over R-square. And the way to explain that was to actually understand that space itself was accelerating, not just expanding, right? So... Uh, and you were using sort of these and you're using these supernovae as kind of yardsticks to measure the sort of size scale of the universe yeah. and you we were doing it at different times because we were looking at these supernovae going off at different places and therefore different so times in the universe. Th-
1: there's a thing that you said just in passing. I know physicists especially astrophysicists like yourself are comfortable mm-hmm. thinking this way. You said space itself is just expanding. I think that boggles the mind of common sense, right? Because when we talk about an expanding universe to common sense, we think of Mm -hmm. the universe, the material universe, expanding into kind of an antecedently existing space, right? That's a kind Mm -hmm. of Newtonian idea. And I know modern physics has overthrown that idea, but I'm not sure that it's... So tell me more about what this means, that space itself is expanding. Where is it expanding into?
4: Nothing. I mean, into just itself. The universe itself is expanding. And I think this is where, you know, all the analogies we make with balloons, blowing balloons, all of that kind of fails at that point, right? Because the universe, you can just think of it, I know, to use this sort of old but very useful cliched metaphor of a sheet. (laughs) And, And there's nothing above the sheet. There's nothing below the sheet, right? The universe is the sheet. And we don't actually know if the universe is finite or infinite, right? Because only a portion of the universe is visible to us at any given time because of the finite age of the universe and the finite speed of light you can only see you can only receive light from objects that today are 13.8 billion years away from us <laughs> and as time goes on more of more and more of the universe will reveal itself to us right and i don't know when i say us it doesn't mean like yeah. us humans i mean right. who knows whether we'll be around or not in a billion years right but i think the easiest way to think of it of the universe and its expansion to sort of conceive of how this could be is to sort of think of this sheet and this sheet being pulled. So the distances between galaxies is what is growing, right? Um, I think that's a sort of nice way to think about it. And to not get fixated on the sort of balloon that's, you know, we are blowing a balloon and that's space. Because there's no special place, the mouth, from where the air is coming in either, right? So there's no center to the universe either.
1: Exactly. I mean, like I said, I know you guys are comfortable with this, but I think it challenges common sense and we need to keep challenging common sense. But, you know, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're thinking about dark matter and dark energy with Yale astronomer uh, Priya Natarajan.
0: If dark energy and and dark matter make up 95% of the universe, all that dark energy, can't we drill for it? Can't we somehow harness all that energy and revolutionize our energy system?
1: Harnessing the dark powers, when Philosophy Talk continues. Thank you for listening to this free stream. To help keep it free, go to our website, philosophytalk.org, and donate. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And now back to the program.
0: In the dark. It's not just in New Jersey, we're, we're all dancing in the dark energy of the cosmos. Thinking about dark matter and dark energy, I'm John Perry, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything.
1: Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Priya Natarajan from Yale University. We've got a caller, Guy, from Redwood City. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Guy. Hi com- there. This kind of stuff, is, uh, to me, is
5: intellectually very exciting. I know I, uh, I I I nearly jumped off a building when I heard about the discovery of <laughs> gravity waves, but my friends think I'm nuts, and their question always is, and the question I have for your guest is, is there any practical use for this stuff? Why does it matter, uh, other <laughs> than scientifically and intellectual? Do, does anybody think that there's going to be a use for this?
1: Good question, Priya. You know, our science fiction guy talked about uh, uh, harnessing dark matter and energy. Is there any practical payoff to this stuff?
4: No, there's no direct practical payoff. But, you know, all the technology and the mathematics and the formalisms that we are all developing and understanding, you know, how to detect it, right? All of that is going to have secondary implications for practical life. But the question itself, right, is driven by human curiosity. And it's part of you know, they have to be as human beings we've always been dreamers and i think that these kinds of big questions are part of who we are I, so i think I, that's where they have
1: a place i totally i totally agree with you that the human curiosity is is a fundamental thing and and satisfying our curiosity is a fundamental human drive and that's enough sometimes uh, but i want to i do want to i want to mm. i want to let my imagination run just a little bit, just to fantasize and play a little bit. I just had the thought. So as I understand it, the reason, even though dark energy is everywhere, Mm -hmm. the reason and space is expanding and the rate of expansion is accelerating, my body's not being stretched out in space because I take it the kind of local effects, the intermolecular attractions and all that stuff, kind of swamp, whatever, Mm-hmm. Dark, a real dark energy plays in expanding space. But could I have like a dark energy ray gun? I could point <laughs> it at John and increase the local force of uh, dark energy, and his body suddenly <laughs> rushes apart. That was a f- kind of an Inter- ex- interesting kind of fantasy life. You kind have of here. a dark yeah, energy, ex- kind of a dark energy explosion. You know what I mean? Localized.
4: Wow, kind of a violent fantasy life here. Oh, I I'm know. not going to get into the minutiae <laughs> of your dynamics here, but no, as I said, the you know dark energy manifests itself on a really different scale, so we can't really quite harness it and somehow make it more powerful on scales that it doesn't operate on. But coming out of the question of you know why aren't we expanding away? It turns out that, you know, our our entire galaxy is not expanding, actually. So, Right. right, the process of forming a galaxy, we say that a galaxy has formed when it actually separates out internally from the expansion of the universe. So, you know, the distance between Rome and New York is not changing. It's not expanding with the expanding universe, right? So we are now tightly captured due to the gravity of dark matter in this case, if you will, which is the Milky Way. And so, what dark energy is doing is really changing the distance between us and nearby galaxies. It's sort of stretching out the distance between us and other galaxies. So,
0: so, so while, we, while we absorb that, uh, just for a change of pace, I want to point out another practical benefit of all this. Uh, mm-hmm. Quoting you, you say, I don't like the world very much. I don't like Absolutely. the inequities. I don't like the strife. Don't like wars. I, I'm with you there. For me, working in cosmology is a form of escape. It is definitely a form of escape. Actually, it's a meditation and a form of escape. So... So, th- th- I mean, tell us more about that.
4: Well, you know, it is true. I'm absolutely honest um, that I really don't like the world, the world <laughs> that we've created with uh, sort of messy. Somehow I like the orderly, the the fact that the universe has these laws and it's orderly mm-hmm. and chaotic and that it's available to all of us. Right. The night sky is available to each one of us to look up and wonder and just feel thrilled to just be here. So for me personally, it it is definitely an escape. And I think that it's also the way for me to cope with this world. And I feel that doing science is uh, is my calling. I'm actually devoted to it, right, Uh, in a way that, you know, and I love it. Um, Much to the um, the chagrin of people in my personal life who think I love it, love my work more than I love anything else.
1: (laughs) I want to ask you something (laughs) else about this, because I'm fascinated by something you said. And it's kind of connected to arguments from design and all that sort of stuff. I'm fascinated by this delicate balance of the scale on which dark energy, which is a kind of expansive force, and gravity operates, which th- keeps things together. It's like the universe. Some people would say, "Look, the universe is finely tuned. It's expanding, but the galaxies aren't flying apart internally. So that's really an amazing thing. Did it just human? Did the universe just happen to settle in to that state, so that gravity and dark energy were so finely balanced that we could have galaxies? Because I suppose if the force of the dark energy were somehow stronger or gravity would weaker, we wouldn't have galaxies
4: aha this is why I believe in other universes because this is what's happening happens in our universe right and so we need to keep open the possibility one way of thinking about this why question and one may argue this is you know postponing the why question um, is to imagine that possibly so there are actually six numbers uh, that actually describe the present past and future of any universe including ours and the question is our universe has these six numbers. that are sort of perfectly balanced to have Uh, to produce the structure that we see and us and so on, right? So it's quite possible that there are many, many other universes out there, in fact, an infinite number of them, with other values, other combinations of these six numbers, including one in which, you know, gravity is stronger than dark energy and so on and so forth, right? And they operate on different scales. So there could be ones that there was a Big Bang, there could be ones that are actually had a Big Bang but are not expanding but contracting. So this is the multiverse theory, the allowance, the mental belief and, you know, I underline belief because we have no evidence for this, um, uh, the allowance that we likely have an infinite number of other universes, and ours is just one instantiation with the kinds of values that we have now, for it, it, these numbers.
0: In, in spite of, of, of meditation and the deep peace that <laughs> uh, thinking about all these galaxies brings, there is a bit of strife in the world of dark matter, Uh how about this astronomer named Vera Rubin, uh, who, who some people think uh, for her contributions to dark matter theory should get the Nobel Prize, but it's been going on for years and she doesn't get it. you have an opinion about that?
4: Oh, absolutely. I think her work was fundamental uh, because it was empirical inference, inference from the data, you know, the speeds of rotations of stars and galaxies. Mm -hmm. That's the work that Vera Rubin and Kent Ford did, right? They actually mapped the speeds of stars and found evidence. And I think, yes, you know, it's well deserved. And uh, it's been very, very disappointing that she's been overlooked. And I think in my book, I talk a little bit more about how the Nobel Prize probably needs to get a little more aligned both with how science is done, it's done in large collaborations, this whole issue of singling out three people, and then also you know, overlooking certain kinds of discoveries and, of course, overlooking women and other um, underrepresented minorities who have made comp- many sort of you know significant contributions.
0: Well, philosophy talk is 100% behind you for what it matters.
1: <laughs> so we, I th- we have a caller on the line? Fenton from Hello. Palo Alto. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, uh, Fenton. Hello, thank you.
5: Me too. Uh, my question is simple yet difficult to formulate. Now, dark matter uh, is presumed to somehow hold uh, galaxies together and interact with the galaxies. Now, what is the nature of that interaction? I'm a chemist, and so chemists like to think in, for a physicist Uh, naive terms, like chemical bonds. Uh, But there has to be some sort of force that's holding together, and that has to move together with the galaxy or hold the galaxy together as it spins.
1: Okay, Fenton. So we're going to have Priya explain to you, a mere chemist, how physicists think about
4: (laughs) this. Well, uh, the... So the only force that these particles experience is gravity, and that's because they have mass. They they experience very weak uh, any other kinds of interactions, right? So we actually don't think that this particle is even charged. As I said, you the leading candidates in neutralino. Now the the kind of dark matter that we envisage that sort of explains all that we see at the moment is the kind that is a cold collision-less dark matter. So these are particles that don't actually collide with each other. They're just held together by gravity, so you can kind of pack them close, but they don't actually bounce off each other and release any energy or exchange energy because of collisions. They have no pressure. So, you know, as a chemist, you can imagine, right, So you're getting pressure because you have molecules colliding with each other and with the walls of a container. So if I actually manage to put dark matter in a container it would have no pressure
1: so see this is a kind of uh, particle I'm, I'm going to summarize the difference between you and Fenton I'm, I'm trying to be a little facetious but I'm serious this is a kind of particle that only a physicist could think <laughs> up and a, and a chemist would never <laughs> say "Ah, oh, I know because a chemist would be like it's got no chemistry right I mean these <laughs> particles couldn't have what what uh, Fenton thinks of as chemistry isn't that right They're not going to form dark molecules or anything like that.
4: Right.
0: The kind of particle only a physicist could love.
4: (laughs) Right. Hey, but also, you know, I think that talking of, you know, who could have conceived of of it, you know, my favorite poet is this Polish poet, Simborska. And she has this beautiful, beautiful poem called View with a Grain of Sand. And are the lines there, just like I'll quote you a couple of lines, which, you know, I I'd remind myself every time I'm thinking about dark matter. You know, the window has a wonderful view of a lake, but the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world, colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless, and painless.
1: Wow. wow. Priya, it's been such a pleasure having you on Philosophy Talk. We have to have you back. This has been a great conversation. I'm going to thank you for uh, joining us. It's really been a pleasure.
4: You guys are fun. I thought we'd have a lot more arguments than we did. <laughs>
1: yeah, well. <laughs>
4: You're pretty open-minded, like people should be. They're, I am all for that.
1: Okay. So our guest has been Priya Natarajan. She's a professor of astronomy at Yale University. She's author of Mapping the Heavens, the Radical Scientific Ideas that Reveal the Cosmos. So, John, you got any dark thoughts for us? this? Uh...
0: Well, you know, physics is overwhelming, and then when you have someone who's so articulate in explaining it, and you still can't co- quite get it. <laughs> it's rather humbling, uh, but what
1: a great guest. Yeah, you know, it is humbling. I mean, but you know what? You know what? You know what's, In a way, it's humbling. But I, I want to stress something that Priya said. In a way, it's humbling, but in a way, it's amazing that this little tiny human brain of ours, right, uh, which we've done shows on, like, magical thinking and how irrational we can be. It's also amazing how if you do it right, if you organize it right, science... Can reach out to the vast cosmos and understand its broad structure and all that. Well, you should la-
0: would you rather live in a universe of which you were the center and the most important thing that you couldn't understand or one in which you were insignificant that you understood very well?
1: Definitely the latter. <laughs> but you know what? This conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers where our motto is Cogito Ergo or oh, I Think Therefore I Blog and you too can become a partner and please do in that community just by visiting our website and clicking a few buttons, philosophytalk.org.
0: Now, cutting through the darkness at the speed of light, let's hear from Ian Scholes, the
3: 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, just to recap, astronomers' theories that dark matter consists of a new kind of elementary particle, known as WIMPs, or weakly interacting massive particles. Massive because they weigh more than neutrinos, say, but they're still way subatomic, but they're called WIMPs because they interact weakly with ordinary matter and interact not at all with light. So they're difficult to detect, and you can't see them. Like grains of sand, is the analogy I've read, or specks of dust. You don't know they're there until you get a desert or you have to empty the vacuum cleaner bag. So you don't see dark matter, but it does take up a whole bunch of the universe. We know dark matter is there because of inferences from gravitation, from luminosity measurements, and from the rotational intensity of galaxies. Even as I write, a coalition of scientists and engineers have banded together to bury what they call a LUX a mile below the ground in the South Dakota Black Hills. LUX stands for Large Underground Xenon Dark Matter Experiment. It's kind of a roach trap, only it hopes to catch a wimp, a theoretical massive neutron called a neutralino to be specific, as it drifts so atomically through the earth. Fingers crossed. Of course, the first thing America wonders, especially these days, is how is this dark matter going to make me any money? In the first place, it will make money the way theoretical physics concepts have always made money as science fiction ideas, usually for television series produced out of Canada, and airing on the sci-fi network for a couple of seasons, then canceled, like Dark Matter, airing now on sci-fi. But science has also given us Black Hole, Quark, Terminator, Star Wars, and many more. Also, sooner or later, closer to the real world, we'll figure out a way to make Dark Matter show up on our radar, even if that sensitive radar has not yet been developed. I mean, it's real stuff, and if it's real, we can exploit it. Imagine houses made from Dark Matter, chairs, invisible shoes, maybe invisible jets like the one Wonder Woman has, because that's the thing with humans, we just can't leave well enough alone. We've got to eat it, set fire to it, have sex with it. And if we can't do any of those things, convince somebody else they can. And sell them shares in Dark Matter Incorporated, the corporation you set up in Delaware to fleece suckers who will fall for anything. You could also call Dark Matter ectoplasm and sell it as evidence that ghosts are real. The possibilities are endless, and it looks like the universe might be too, thanks to Dark Matter. Good thing, because the biggest use for Dark Matter will come in the future, assuming we have one and that the universe is made of neutrinos. You build a spaceship, see, with a big intake in the front, kind of like the xenon Dark Matter trap crossed with a vacuum cleaner. It will be designed to scoop up Neutralinos, which will annihilate each other in contact and force to the back of the ship, firing energy out the rear like a jet engine. The cool part? The more Neutralinos you pick up, the faster you accelerate, theoretically reaching near light speed in just days. Sure, speed of light. In the same way, all of human knowledge is at our fingertips on the Internet. Amazing, and yet we spend our time on the Internet posting pictures of puppies and snarking on politics, which is why I suspect our Neutralino engine will end up as a leaf blower. High end, though. Sold only through the Hammerker slimer catalog. I gotta go. Philosophy
0: Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2016.
1: Our executive producer is David Demarest. The
0: program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Dave McAllister is our director
1: of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Mark Stone, Erica Topete, and Colin Peden. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and the partners
0: at our online community of thinkers.
1: And also from the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates.
0: The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of
1: our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers.
0: I'm John Perry,
1: and I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening, and thank you for thinking.
5: Take your weapon. Strike me down with all of your hatred and your journey towards the dark side will be complete.
0: Hey, you made it to the end of the show. Not everybody does. That means you must really like us, so help us. How can you help us? Go to philosophytalk.org, look for the I Will Help button,
1: click it, and get ready to help. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you so much for donating.